to begin to grasp the extent of the social experiment standing behind the visible structures of mass compulsion schooling, it isn't necessary to conjure up conspiracies of the classical variety, but only to look at child rearing from an engineering point of view as animal training beyond the reach of the animal to fully comprehend, as when a, a falconer shrouds his bird to prevent it from obeying its nature, or when a horse racing association dictates that lead be attached to a fast horse's saddle to bring its performance in line with the rest of the pack. In both cases, bird and horse are less than they would have been, having been reduced to instruments of a different species design. With schooling, too, it shouldn't be difficult to understand that from certain perspectives, it might also be desirable to alter the behavior of human children negatively in the interests of some managerial goal. Welcome to part six of the Essence of Anarchy series. In the previous episodes, I have defined anarchy as concerning questions of consent and coercion. I have made the case that coercive action has inherently negative outcomes, and I've claimed that nation-states operate by coercive means. If that is all true, then we should expect to see the corrosive effects of coercion impacting the services nation-states provide. Over the course of the next several episodes, I will attempt to demonstrate that this is in fact the case, that coercion does indeed poison such services from the root up. In the last episode, I presented an outline for what a consensual, government-like structure might look like. So too in the following episodes, I will endeavour to present an outline of what form consensual alternatives to state-run services might take. And as promised, we're going to start with education. To put my cards on the table, for me, education was the first thing to go. That is to say, I began to question why the state was running an educational system long before I doubted its capabilities in any other area, and long before I knew anything whatsoever about anarchism. A major reason for this is one I will share with the vast majority of you. By the age of 16, we have all been exposed to around 12 years of the schooling system. This gave me insight into its operation that I simply didn't have into areas such as healthcare or the justice system, for example. Having begun my schooling career as an optimist for what was in store, by the time I'd reached the end, it had all come to look pretty dysfunctional. I'll run through some of my observations. The teaching staff were often quite open about having no interest in the subjects they taught and encouraged us likewise. It was all simply about memorising to pass examinations. This was somewhat disheartening. The acknowledgement that all we were doing with the many years of our school life was, in truth, utterly meaningless. The system was, clearly, utterly cruel to at least 50% of the children. Continuously judging all children by an academic standard inevitably conveys the message, a majority of you are stupid and worthless. 
Such a thing is, of course, never directly spoken, but the implication is unavoidable. The system had to, by necessity, always inflate its own importance. Teachers would provide horror stories of children who didn't study for their exams, going on to spend their whole lives in factories screwing lids on tubes of toothpaste. To acknowledge that school might actually have little or no effect on your adult life would be to call the whole system into question. School kept children as prisoners against their will. I knew countless kids who whiled away their school life having 18th century poetry forced into their brains when all they wanted to do was get out there and start a real job. School is inherently fascistic in nature. Could there be anything more sacred and individualistic than one's educational choices? Schooling removes those choices from the individual and dictates what must be learnt. This carries on up the chain to the teachers, who do not have the freedom to teach as they see fit, but rather must bend to the will of their own betters. School vastly wastes resources. Everyone I know has had 10 years of compulsory language classes. Almost no one I know speaks a foreign language. This is simply a vast misallocation of resources. It means that adults have less money in their pockets to do things such as pay off their mortgages and acquire the freedom that comes with that because money is being wasted. Wasting people's labour is a form of cruelty. Finally, a low-level nastiness pervaded the whole system, arising naturally from teaching staff being required to continuously force children into action against their will. It's certainly not uncommon to converse with people on the shortcomings of the educational system. Unlike other areas such as healthcare, where the problem is generally perceived as a lack of funding, People tend to be very open to the idea that the schooling system would benefit from substantial reform. Indeed, if you followed the series this far, I'd be surprised if you weren't such a person yourself. My observations are not original. A few years ago, a very popular TED talk by educational philosopher Dr. Ken Robinson critiqued the educational system as arising out of an industrial revolution mindset and containing outdated 19th century prejudices. The fact that this talk currently has tens of millions of views on YouTube indicates that this is not a fringe position. We're getting our children to education by anesthetizing them. And I think we should be doing the exact opposite. We shouldn't be putting them asleep. We should be waking them up to what they have inside of themselves. But the model we have is this. It's, I believe we have a system of education that is modelled on the interests of industrialism and in the image of it. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, schools are still pretty much organised on factory lines, so ringing bells, separate facilities, uh, specialised into separate subjects. Um, we still educate children by batches. You know, we put them through the system by age group. Why do we do that? You know, why is there this assumption that the most important thing kids have in common is how old they are? You know, it's like the most important thing about them is their date of manufacture. You know what I mean? Well, I know kids who are much better than other kids at the same age in different disciplines. You know, or at different times of the day. Or better in smaller groups than in large groups. Or sometimes they want to be on their own. If you're interested in the model of learning, you don't start from this production line mentality. These are, it's essentially about conformity, and increasingly it's about that as you look at the growth of standardized testing and standardized curricula. 
And it's about standardization. I believe we've got to go in the exact opposite direction. That's what I mean about changing the paradigm. Now, no doubt any system can be run in a better or worse manner. And I'm certainly sure there is great wisdom in the evaluation of educational philosophers such as Dr. Robinson. I do believe, though, that there is a fundamental flaw here too, in not perceiving that the root of all these problems is that the state is a coercive entity, fundamentally incapable of running an educational system. If you recall from the last episode, I defined a government-like model as one where choices are collectivized, in contrast to a market-like model where they are left at the level of the individual. I said that making decisions collectively can be more efficient, but it comes at the cost of individual choice. This is just fine if we are talking about arranging window cleaners for an apartment block. We are surely happy to exchange choice for efficiency here. By contrast, most of us wouldn't want our reading choices collectivized just so we could get a better deal on the purchase of books. I chose reading as the example very deliberately, as this struck me as the core problem with the state running an education system. It is an attempt to collectivize, and therefore sacrifice individual choice, in an area where freedom to choose is of paramount importance. Even during my time at school, it seemed to me that the state was a bad fit for education. As I became aware of Annika's philosophy, I took this thought further. At the root of the educational system is its funding through taxation. That is to say, the funds are collected by coercion and not through consent. According to the theory of property I have laid out in previous episodes, the state has no right to lay claim to the land you live on or to your labour. Even if you think the schooling system is a horrible idea, you are still forced to financially contribute to it. The ability to fund itself without consent delings the educational system from its customers, the parents and their children who attend schools. There are two further factors that add to this delinking. The first is the partially compulsory nature of attendance, making it harder not only to withdraw from paying for the service, but to withdraw from using it too. The second is that state funding allows the type of exams the schooling system sets to become so ubiquitous that they are required for entry into many jobs, and all state jobs beyond a certain level. These factors combine to ensure schools are not accountable to parents. This is in contrast to a market system, where if schools were not good places to be, absent bullying etc, they would lose their funding quickly. They would also not have the power to compel attendance or set monolithic standards across society. What, then, would a consensual alternative look like? There are two levels upon which this question must be addressed. On one level, an alternative would simply be a system funded with consent. This could be what we have called a market-like model, where parents would pay schools directly, or it could be a government-like model, where the locations where people live place a requirement to fund education. I must say I find the latter unlikely, but I include it as I know some people are more drawn to it as a model, and I want to be clear there is nothing in anarchism that precludes it. Indeed, I could see it working if, in an anarchist system, more ideologically unified communities arose. 
On another level, however, this answer is far too limited. Schooling is something that is, by this stage, thoroughly ingrained in our psyches. After around 150 years, the fact that children go to school is an absolute given. To seriously question this requires an expanse of imagination into unexplored possibilities. The last time schooling was not compulsory, nobody owned a motor car or had used a telephone. Today, it's hard to imagine what early life would consist of, if not schooling. Indeed, society has only been able to evolve the way it has because children have been substantially removed from it. As just one example, we take for granted that our living areas are crisscrossed by thin stretches of land that metal boxes hurtle along at life-threatening speeds. I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but the evolution of this system has been aided by the fact that kids, to whom the system poses the most danger, are locked away five days a week. The same could be said of our child-exclusive workplaces. These have been aided in their evolution by transferring the cost of childcare onto the state, and thereby the taxpayer. Had the choice to introduce compulsory schooling not been made, we would, by necessity, be living in a more child-friendly world. Asking what a consensual education system would look like is therefore really a question of reimagining society to be inclusive of children. Now let's turn to look at some common objections. One fear is that without compulsory schooling, children will be exposed to the risk of not learning to read. This is a foundational concern, as if you can read, you can learn pretty much anything else, but without it, you're in trouble. There are many ways to address this question. I'd like to present just one that I think is novel and sticks with our principle of being self-evident and able to be reasoned through without looking up any statistics. And that is, medieval peasants could read. In spite of a commonly held belief that they were all illiterate, it appears many medieval peasants could actually read and write perfectly well. So therefore, everyone in the medieval period was illiterate. No. Okay, no. We have letters in, you know, uh, like medieval England, written in English, sent from peasants to peasants. Okay, we got letters, we got land rights and everything like that. We have a lot of evidence indication that these people could read English. Alright? And so when it comes to literacy rates of the most common language that they would know, the, the estimates are very hard to nail down. Having looked into this, it seems the, the, the conservative minimum estimate, this is the conservative, I think it's a lot higher than this, was de definitely like at least one person per household could read and write, and it seems to be much higher, alright? And at least 50% amongst the population, if not higher. And that's not an illiterate society, far from it, okay? And so this idea that the medieval people were both uneducated and illiterate is a, uh, it's a pervasive myth that needs to be like completely just dispel it. I would suggest that when you think about it, it's obviously the case that peasants could read. The ability to read and write confers immense practical benefit. To do it at a basic level requires the memorization of 26 characters and their associated sounds. 26 is not a big number. As an illustration, there are 20 football teams in the English Premier League. A sizable portion of the English population can not only tell you the names of these teams, but know exactly where they are in that league, how many points they have, 
who they've played and who plays for them at any given time. The ability to remember 26 symbols is not a big task. We would be required to believe our ancestors were really stupid then not to acquire this basic skill and pass it on to their children. It turns out they weren't stupid, and that's exactly what they did. The reason we commonly think they were illiterate is because the word literacy, in the medieval world, specifically referred to the ability to read and write Latin, by which standard we are all still illiterate today. An additional reason why I think this is important to address is that the derogatory and incorrect view of our apparently illiterate ancestors has given us the impression that people, left to their own devices, really stand a good chance of failing to learn to read. We therefore need to force learning to stop this. It seems this wasn't true a thousand years ago, nor is it true today. The unschooling movement, parents who reject the very concept of schooling, reports that children naturally learn to read quite quickly, but almost always when they are older than age four, when it holds some practical value for them. Educationalist Peter Gray actually reports the age children naturally learn is becoming younger and younger, as reading confers benefits at an earlier age now due to technology. A further common objection is that, absent schooling, children at the lower economic end of society would be cast adrift. If taxation-based schools disappear, then wealthier families might do just fine, but the poor, being unable to afford educational resources, would suffer. The first thing to note is that the parents of these children, their parents and grandparents, all went through compulsory state education. Yet after 150 years, all this forced learning has not lifted them out of poverty. I don't think this is a knockout punch. The education system is clearly not the only reason for the continued existence of poverty. It could also be the case we just need to reform schools and force education better. It is worth noting, though, that history does not exactly provide a ringing endorsement of the state's efforts. Given that educational resources are today available in abundance, this cannot be a question of access. Are we really saying that a certain segment of the population lacks the self-responsibility to take care of themselves and educate their children? Is there a certain contempt here for the lower orders, that they need to turn their children over to their betters to raise them? This does have a ring to it of native people being required to turn their children over to the white man, else they'd be raised by savages. Obviously I'm not wishing to be naive and ignore the fact that there are highly dysfunctional families in society. I would simply contend that I think it is even more naive to think the solution to this dysfunction comes through forcing education upon them, rather than the use of consensual, persuasive approaches, including addressing the roots of poverty, which we'll come to in a later episode. Additionally, we must look at what the consequences are for such children and families. They are obviously often the ones who do worst at school, leaving of no qualifications. When you decide to force education, you must then be prepared to go to draconian lengths to enforce attendance. Thousands of parents gain criminal records each year in the United Kingdom due to their children not attending school. Police are sometimes dispatched to abduct children from their homes and escort them to school. 
I'll leave it to you to imagine what mood they'd be in to study Shakespeare that day. With this being said, there may remain a problem of childcare. We should be clear that this is the problem though, and not one of education. In line with Confucius' advice on giving all things their proper name, the Department of Education could be renamed the Department of Childcare as a first step. Again, this is a factor of how society has developed. The state spends thousands of pounds each year to effectively lock children out of communities. In the absence of this, alternatives would have to develop. I would suggest more humane ones too. If we are to de-school society, we must begin by de-schooling our minds. The following list of questions are intended not to be answered quickly, but rather to be reflected upon. Is it a good thing to group a whole segment of society together by age? Is it a good idea to enforce extreme levels of academic learning across the board? Is it good to repeatedly expose children to examinations? Is it productive to force children to learn subjects they have no interest in? Is it wise to keep children out of the workplace till they are 16? Is it wise to keep children so isolated from the rest of society? Do children need to be forced to learn things? Do they lack natural curiosity? Is it cruel to place children in an environment where it is made unavoidably clear to them that they are failures every day for 12 years? Are there likely to be any long-term consequences to doing this? How would you feel if adult education was run the way children's is? What would your childhood have been like in a supportive society absent schooling? The quotation at the start was from a speech made by John Taylor Gatto. He was voted New York Teacher of the Year several times. His research into the history of education led him to conclude schooling across the world was established to control the minds of the young, not to liberate them. Whilst it is somewhat beyond the scope of this series to explore the motivations of the state, historically this is clearly the case. Education has always been available, and is so now more than ever. It is a reasonable assumption then that the state's involvement is not really about provision, but rather about ensuring the direction of that education moves along acceptable lines. Thank you for listening. Next time, I'll be taking a look at what I consider to be one of the most challenging areas, that of healthcare provision.